The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman from The Homes Report, and we are very happy to be rejoined today by Tim Sutton, the Weber Shandwick CEO for EMEA, Chairman for Asia Pacific. Tim, I imagine there are some other titles that I have neglected to mention, but welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Arun. We're talking cricket, aren't we? Isn't that what you normally talk about in your podcasts? <laughs> That's a different podcast with ah. another another Weber Shandwick person. Um, ah. But we can talk cricket if you'd rather talk cricket rather than the global PR I think, market. I can't imagine why. I think we'll, uh, we'll lose the audience very quickly if we do, probably. But uh, we'll another the, time. We'll lose the Americans, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so how are you anyway, Tim? I'm very well, thank you, Arun. Um, it's sitting on a reasonably nice spring day in London, although the cold weather's coming back. But, but hey, it's good. Okay. Good. So I'm keen to talk to you about the global PR market. I think the last time we had you on the Echo Chambers, going back a bit now, probably around 18 months, um, mm. and I think you had just moved back from Asia to That's right. EMEA. Uh, and, and I think you moved back because, you know, clearly you wanted the experience again of, of the winters in London. I think you missed them so much. You're um, so spot on, I did, yeah. <laughs> Um, but spring is here. Uh, last year was a, or at least it looked like a tough one for the global PR market. Uh, growth was was more elusive than usual. Even a network like Weber Shandwick, which has really set the industry standard in terms of growth over the past decade, um, found conditions difficult. And I'm curious to know what you made of it all in 2017 and whether you see that changing in 2018 well it was you're right it was um i think a tougher year and i think you have to you know place this in a little bit of historic context which is that it was the first tough year in my memory i'm trying to go back to probably about since about 2010 right uh no 2009 was a terrible year 2010 we started to pick up and from 2010 right through uh, and including 2016. Mm -hmm. um, not every company had an amazing time, but certainly uh, companies like we did, Edelman did, um, Conan Wolf, of course, um, more recently, has had a really strong performance. In fact, I think I'm right in saying prior to um, last year, we had had something like, I hope I get the number right, but something like 29 consecutive quarters of organic growth. And um, if you look at Edelman's performance during that same period, it was also incredibly strong. Um, and so if you take if you take those two businesses as being, if you like, um, the joint flag bearers of the industry currently, we'll come on to <laughs> later on to, you know, whether industry leaders last or not. But um, if you look at that jointly, it was it was a it was a very, very good long period. So here we have 20 in 2017. You're right. Um, if you look at both, um, you know, our results, and of course we uh, we talk about 
the PR results for the holding company as a whole, not just specifically Weber Shamwick, mm-hmm. uh, as do you know most of our holding company competitors. But nonetheless, let's, if you look at all of that, then yes, it was a, a really tough year. I saw Edelman's numbers with um, pretty modest growth as well. I forget the exact number. You'll remind me, something like two or two and a half percent. Yeah, two point one. Um, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was a challenging year. Um, I wouldn't, you know, was it a complete shock? Um, Yes and no. I kind of go, being British, um, I kind of go to every year feeling cautious and bearish just because that's the way we are in Britain, you know, compared to our our friends in the US who are more overtly positive. Um, But I think it 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 was a mixed year. I mean, we had, from our point of view, it wasn't kind of everywhere. We had a really strong performance in Europe. I'm delighted to say, and you know, with some double-digit growth, which mm. was quite remarkable in the circumstances, given Brexit, blah blah, yeah, you know, German issues and so on. Um, but a really strong performance in Asia. It's definitely slower, and China, particularly from the halcyon days when when I was there uh, for seven or eight years, you know, I had a really really lucky run. So China has obviously slowed down, but nonetheless, it was a good performance um, in Asia. And in North America, um, you know, the major offices continue to do well. Uh, we had a few headwinds in some of the smaller regional offices. And there was some evidence, uh, I think it is fair to say, of um, client caution, no question at all. Um, and whether you, you know, ascribe that to the various geopolitical developments in the world, um, you know, in fact, the irony is, is the stock markets did really, really well, but nonetheless, a lot of consumer caution. And certainly on the FMCG area, if you look at, you know, two or three of the major players in that area, clients I'm talking about, obviously, um, and publicly um, cut back marketing in some areas, um, or, and at least or change their marketing spend in some areas. So it was a tougher year. I think it's fair to say, um, and I say this, you know, we're early days in 2018. There was, I'm pleased to say, some sign of momentum coming back um, over the last quarter of last year and into this year. Uh And we're feeling, uh, therefore, rather better about this year um, than we probably were in the middle of last year. But yeah, a tougher year, Arun, no question about it. Mm. Before I talk to you about the, the various geographies under your remit, just wanted to ask you whether you thought the softness in the market, whether you saw that as cyclical or structural. Um, Bit hard to say, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and it, it's it's um, always very very hard to opine on these things when they happen. Was it? Mm-hmm. I think it was Chow and Lai who said it was a little bit too early still to see the impact of the French Revolution, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I, so I think. Um, there, there clearly was some degree of cyclical. I've heard and read, you know, a lot of other material that, that raises big questions about the agency model that we might come on to and has life changed and, and disruption in the marketplace from from new or different entrants. And, and, and maybe all of that's happening as well. But in a sense, I think everyone's disrupting everyone else at the moment. Um, you know, we're, we're disrupting people, people are disrupting us and so on. So clearly, uh, under the short term, there's always longer term things happening. And I think it's, you know, too early to call on that yet. I also remain, um, and I think we all do, immensely positive and excited about the opportunities for a global PR firm at the moment. And we, we might come back to that in a moment. Uh, you know, I still think there's an awful lot to be... Uh, excited about in terms of the work but it could be that there are some 
you know, deeper currents playing at the moment. Mm. So looking at the um, geographic spread, you mentioned, of course, Weber Shandwick's or double-digit growth in Europe. Um, uh, I should say technically EMEA, but oh, yes, Europe is obviously the largest part of that, yes. Right. So that was, I mean, it was a little bit of a surprise, but actually what surprised me more was that for the industry as a whole last year, Asia was uh, softer than expected. And in particular, China um, did not deliver the growth returns that I think many agencies had perhaps come to take for granted. Um, how concerned are you about the fact that China may not now deliver 15 to 20% growth reliably every year to the PR industry? Well, I think you're, you're right. I think um, we all became used to very, very good levels of growth in, in, in Asia-Pac as a whole. And obviously, China was the big engine of that. And I think for it was not uncommon, again, during that period up to, say, 2016, to have very significant you know, double-digit growth in, in, in China. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of slight, you know, again, disconnect there between what you might call macroeconomics and microeconomics, because if you if you take as read the kind of official GDP growth figures in China, they remain very healthy, you know, compared to almost anywhere mm-hmm. anywhere else in the in the world. But nonetheless, the, the no, absolutely no question has been a slowdown in China in terms of our activity, and I think it would be shared by all of our uh, competitors and indeed by the major local players like Blue Focus and so on. And so, you know, take 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 that kind of opportunity. Of course, there's concern. And it may be that we're into, you know, a new normal, uh, if I can put it that way. Um, but having said that, you look at where Asia's come from um, in the last, again, seven to eight years, where I know we effectively trebled the size of our business. I know Edelman have done very well. Mm. Ogilvy, of course, has always been you know, strong in, in Asia. You look at the performance of Blue Focus and, and some of the smaller players. It's been a great, great time. And it could be uh, that that market is beginning to mature more. And we're not going to see the sort of Wild West you know, growth numbers that we've seen before. Um, and wouldn't it be nice to still have them? Yes, of course it would. But I think, you know, we're that that business is is changing and developing and maturing and and it's if you look at its significance in terms of the global market today compared to 10 years ago say um it's hugely transformed and i don't see that receding or going away you know asia pack's here to stay uh in terms of our market but yes it may be we shall see um, that, you know, we're not going to see, you know, the 20% and the 30% and uh, that some of us enjoyed for some time. We should mm. see. Yeah, I think that makes sense because, you know, at some point you would expect China can't keep growing at the same rate. Um, but if, if there is a slowdown in growth in China, are there other parts of Asia that perhaps might pick up that slack? Um, well, I think that there are, and again, I, I can't. I'm not sure, you know, how, how typical our profile is of, of the whole um, the whole industry. We we've had um, last year really strong performances in, in Singapore, which is still a hugely important um, area. We had uh, a great performance in Japan, um, which, for, you know, for a long time everyone thought was um, almost the antithesis of China, you know, big but stagnant. Um, and uh, Japan business well, Korea remains really strong. And you're you're based, you're in India at the moment, I think, Arun, mm-hmm. and you know, the Indian business um, from a low base 
um, continues to grow very, very strongly. So, so there were some, you know, there, there remain very good markets in Asia. Um, it just may be, and I think again, it's too early to say, just maybe that, you know, China is not going to sort of dominate everything in the way that it perhaps did for, for four or five years. Mm. But my, my good friend, Darren Burns, who runs that China operation, you know, remains very, very bullish about the, uh, the business there. And, you know, the exciting thing, I think that's happening in China as well, is that there is, um, this is one of the interesting things about, about China um, now is, um, e- you know, even if we don't go back to the kind of dizzying rates of growth in the market that we saw for six or seven years, we may, but let's assume we don't, is that China um, is assuming greater importance for us globally because of the type of um, work skills and expertise that um, that market has developed. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically, for instance, Arun, of um, the hugely exciting work on in the, on the content commerce area. Mm. Um, so obviously, um, you know, um, if you take WeChat, um, which is kind of, um, well, let's say it's like Google and Amazon, PayPal kind of rolled into one. Well, no, throw in Facebook as well, um, and and the and the, uh, the the huge market that creates has led us and, and maybe one or two of our competitors as well into really exciting um, work uh, in the content commerce area, which we are now uh, exporting out of China back into Europe and North America. Um, perhaps coming down the Great Silk Road, uh, which is <laughs> which mm. is happening as well. So, so I suppose what I'm saying is that uh, even if um, you know China doesn't see the sort of crazy growth rates that we've we've seen, it's in a sense acquired a much greater global significance for it, yeah. uh, way and beyond yeah. the performance within the market itself. Yeah, and I suspect will only take on greater global significance. Um, if recent events are any guide. Um, turning your your attention to EMEA, which markets and sub-regions are you bullish on in 2018? Well, in markets, pretty much, pretty much all of them. Um, oh, okay. the, 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 you know, the, the growth um, that we achieved last year um, was... Um, Pretty much in nearly every market. So, if, you know, just very quickly going through, and we had a especially strong performance in the UK, in spite of all the doomsayers, <laughs> in terms of you know what does or doesn't happen on the B word, uh, and of course that that may may still have longer term implications that we just don't know yet because no one knows. But nonetheless, um, London and the UK was was very very resilient for us. We had a excellent performance in Germany the second year running um, and that's becoming more and more important as a market we had an excellent performance in the Nordics um, through our business prime Weber Shamwick um, we continue to grow in Africa uh, we have pretty respectable performances everywhere I think in terms you know moving from a geographic demarcation into you know the kinds of work what you know what we found last year is that you know where we've been able to create and introduce um, new intellectual property, if I can put it that way, you know, where we've developed new products and services um, for clients, whether that's in the area of um, 
of analytics or mobile applications um, or high-end, higher-end strategic consulting, if I can put it that way. Um, those, the clients where we've been able to apply those um, different skills and expertise grew by far uh, more, more strongly than those where we didn't. And, and indeed, from our point of view, are a much better, stickier, and indeed more profitable relationships um, and profitable from the client's point of view as well. So I do think, you know, we're, we're beginning to, we have a really good understanding now of kind of, if we look at our own client relations, what's driving growth and, and perhaps what isn't driving so much growth. Um, and it's our ability, and this is the challenge, uh, it's our ability to deliver you know, that talent to clients. Well, I'm sure we've got the talent in the first place, of course, but deliver it to clients in a far more broader, integrated way. And, and where we've managed to uh, to bring a much di- more diverse range of talent and skills to the client, hey, presto, you know, the relationship grows and develops far more quickly. So it's really, in, conceptually, it's kind of simple to see what you've got to do. Um, practically speaking, of course, there's lots of executional challenges to do that, as we all know. Mm. But the that's where the growth for us came from, and I've, I'm pretty sure that will continue this year. Mm. So I'll I'll jump quickly to talent because you you mentioned that as mm. you know in a way I guess the biggest obstacle, perhaps, um, to growth. Uh, and a question that I'm always curious to hear the answers to, and, and you're someone, of course, that has a number of agency CEOs, you know, that report into you from various markets. Um, what is your idea of an, of, a, of an ideal agency CEO these days? And how has that changed, if at all? Well, apart from Andy Polanski, you mean? <laughs> is that, I think, are, are you contractually obliged to, to, to mention, <laughs> mention that as your answer? Uh, well, we have a pretty good global CEO, as you know. So, um, well, it's, listen, I, I think uh, that there are... You know many different styles, obviously, uh, um, to be to be a global CEO in, in our market as there are in every other market. There's no sort of, you know, personality template. Um, there's no there's no sort of you know um, tick boxes that you that you have to uh, satisfy. There are all sorts of different good global CEOs. And you know, and apart from um, apart from Andy, you know, I have a lot of time for people like Richard Edelman, um, for, obviously for Donna at Conan Wolf, uh, and, and and for others. I think the more general comment I would make is that um, may, just maybe we have uh, the, the sort of idea of of a sort of great Napoleonic uh, command control hero, if I can put it that way. Mm. You know, who 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 through by by force of his or her personality um, you know drives the whole business globally and everything flows from that person I think that's you know, increasingly difficult just because our um, you know our organizations now are so complex uh, and I know Sir Martin's talked about simplification but our organizations are in some ways necessarily complex in the way we have to organize ourselves we have to organize ourselves still by market P&Ls because that makes sense we organize ourselves to some degree by 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 practice expertise um, we organize ourselves by um, 
by by major client relationships and how we manage those and increasingly we're organizing ourselves by you know we talk about different virtual skill communities in the business whether it's content or integrated media or or data and analytics or indeed you know the whole client experience part of it and to make all of that work in in a matrix world is uh, is challenging for for all of us mm. and so i really come back to the idea that um that the if you want the ideal ceo were there such a thing um is is really someone that um is absolutely focused on people and culture because at the end of the day one person however great the ceo is one person cannot just absolutely cannot drive it in that um, kind of way that maybe you know maybe you could ten years ago, and certainly maybe you could in a more simple organisation. And it's who that person therefore, you know, surrounds themselves with, um, and the type of culture they are able to facilitate. I mean, Arun, uh, you and I both love sport, and I'm not going to bore people for too long about sport because not everyone listening. Um, on this call necessarily loves it but um i thought it was a really interesting you know observation um you know normally we talk football and cricket but i'm going to mention rugby now you know when um when you know england um sadly lost to scotland you know uh, there were co- really good comments made about the lack of leaders on the field you know mm. so the coach can have the master plan and then the game starts and and stuff happens and sometimes it doesn't happen very well. And then you're looking for how people on the field um, are able to think through and adjust a change of plan without the coach being able to do anything because the coach is on the sidelines at that point until half time at least. Mm-hmm. And and I think the ability therefore to have uh, for, a, for a global CEO to have people around them and to trust them ultimately, because that's what you have to do, um, to be able to think on their feet uh, to be able to lead, yes, people make mistakes, we all do, but generally to have that sense of, of trust in the team is really important. Or for those who don't like a sporting metaphor, I'll use another metaphor, which is, um, you know, uh, when I was young, I remember saying to my dad, that that guy who conducts the orchestra seems a really simple job, like he just waves a stick around and everyone plays. And I thought, how come they're so famous, all of them, you know? And the older I've got, I, you kind of appreciate, well, actually, the conductor, is doing something pretty amazing, uh, waving his or her stick around, um, because he is teasing out of that orchestra and, and guiding and finessing, you know, what, what the ultimate outcome is. And, and he or she may not be, they're not playing the music, but they are doing something quite remarkable, which is why, you know, diff- different uh, conductors have different styles and the music has different styles and, and so on. So kind of, uh, I think, think of a global CEO now as a kind of a supreme conductor uh, of, of the orchestra and the real the biggest focus to that on me is on again is on people and above all you know that intangible of of culture which is uh, hard to pin down as always um, in any organization but nonetheless relates to a sense of shared purpose and the kind of values uh, and behaviors that under underpin that and and all good good cultures it comes seems to me you know, kind of have that shared sense of belonging. People kind of know what they're about, and what they're doing, and why they're, and why they're doing it. Um, and you know that that is somewhere away from, you know, the kind of the, the, the leader charging over the hill saying, "Follow me." You know, oh. um, you still need a little bit of that, maybe. I don't know. But so when I think of the people I admire, certainly within our industry or outside it, they're those who are able to, um, to make the people 
around them uh, feel like leaders as well. And one thing I've learned, Arun, as well, the older I've got is, you know, we, we um, when, we're, when we're younger, we tend to, when we're recruiting people, we tend to recruit people that are like us, that we like. And I've kind of learned the wisdom to ensure you recruit people who are really, really good at the things you're not good at. <laughs> because you know, that's a much, a much, much happier uh, situation. Find people who enjoy doing things you don't or are better at you at doing certain things. And if you try and get that balance right, then you end up with a good, you know, balance of skills and, and, and temperaments and all the rest of it. Yeah, so would you, would you say you're looking for the same characteristics from for example, a local market CEO who's reporting into you? I mean, do you, do you still think it is about that focus on culture or are you more interested in the numbers they're going to deliver every month? Well, of course you're interested in the numbers, but the numbers are merely just a reflection of other things, aren't they? I mean, all, all you know, numbers, numbers matter ultimately, um, in my view, um, not because you're set targets on goals by holding companies of course you are quite rightly but if if your um, revenues are growing and if you are profitable then to me it's a mark that you you're doing something right put see put simply people want to buy what you're offering or to pay a better price for what you're offering and so you know revenue that's growing or profitability that's improving is almost a mark of self-esteem. Um, it's, it's telling is telling you you're doing something right. And conversely, where it doesn't happen, we all sit around the table saying, "What are we doing wrong?" If that if that's the case. So I think when you come to when you come to you know a local market CEO, I don't know, running an office of anything from thirty to seventy people, say, or a hundred people, you know, those people remain obviously hugely important and, and influential within that market. And and when you're sitting in a you know, with 30, 50, 70 people, it's kind of a different model in a well, in, in a sense, you know, where the leader remains hugely important kind of on the field and off the field, if I go back to my sporting analogy. But even they have to um, um, interrelate in, in a complex matrix world, you know, with, with colleagues, with uh, many, many different levels. So the kind of, again, you, you, you can't just you know, be a CEO in a market and say, I'm going to do it my way. And that's the way it is. Um, and everyone else can lump it. You know, you have to work with colleagues around the world, cross discipline, cross markets. It's complicated. And so the, the emphasis on what you might call EQ abilities uh, on how you manage that are probably more important than they've ever been. Mm. Now, you, you've just talked at length about the importance of culture um, to the success of an agency. Does culture not come under threat when agencies consolidate, uh, which appears to be a trend we are seeing more of? Well, I think it's it's, it's challenging, and 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 um, let's talk about you know um, the 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 recent one you're alluding to. Let's the, bring the, the seven hundred million dollar gorilla <laughs> in the room, I guess. <laughs> well, well. I think I think it's challenging, not impossible. It's, it's too challenging. I mean, the first thing I would say is that um, you know I really really hope that merger does go well. I think it would be good for the industry if it did. Um, and um, you know if if um, if that combined business does well, it's probably a reflection that we're all doing pretty well. So I, I really do kind of wish it well um, for all sorts of. Of, of different reasons, as well as you know, knowing people who work there and, uh, and so on. And I think from the 
you looked at it from um, you know a holding company level. Um, I you know I don't think you need to have done the MBA to work out why it might look a very persuasive idea. Um, in that um, you are you know bringing two businesses together that on the face of it have very uh, different but complementary practice area strengths. You know in terms of. Um, if you say corporate and crisis and all the rest of it in, in Burson, the really strong uh, consumer capability and healthcare capability of Cohen and Wolf. And so putting them together and on paper looks really, really good. You obviously get you know, all sorts of back office um, potential synergies and, and, and savings. Uh, and maybe, just maybe, you feel this is a structure you can explain um, to clients with more simplicity and persuasiveness. And I think those are all, you know, clearly, you know, pretty pretty strong factors in favour. But having said that, we all know um, that the mergers are challenging. Um, and um, I know from my personal experience, good of you know, good and bad. So you know, back in whenever it was, you know, uh, two thousand one was it? I forget now. It's a long time ago. But you know, when we had well course we had our own uh, merger well previously Weber had merged with Shamwick and then we BSMG was thrown into the mix you know we had three companies in a sense to kind of pull together and in the end it's um it, it went very well but um honesty also allows me to say it was tough for the first year or two you know because um and, and that also at that time in the market wasn't great I think about that time either it was really tough and there was some pain involved and it takes time um, for it to all come together. Now, in that case, we, you know, fortunately, I think we had, um, you know, I was proud to be part of a senior management team led by Harris Diamond at the time. We had a team that kind of understood what it was about and, and also understood that um, we, although some of us or a lot of us, those people from BSMG, we had, we understand the importance of the the Shamwick business as well, which in fact arguably was a much stronger brand than we were um, at the time. And we had great people, you know, the Shamwick side of like Colin Byrne and many, many others that we knew had to be part of it and feel part of it. And, you know, this, this you have to be very, very careful, um, you know, how you bring that together. And you also have to take tough decisions. I mean, if I think about going back into the distant past, probably when you were still in short trousers room back in the um, early 90s, you know, I was part of a business, Charles Barker, you know, which which had been owned by uh, a small, smaller holding company, Corporate Communications in London, and they merged together Charles Barker and City and Commercial. Uh, back in the early 90s and it was completely disastrous right <laughs> so I've kind of seen it both ways and it it was it was disastrous just because no no real tough decisions were made you know some people had duplication of positions and they tried to fob everyone else say off saying well you're still important and you're still important you're still important and no one really knew what the accountability was and within a year or two you know half the people had left and of course that business that old that old business went bankrupt before uh, we were able to revive Charles Barker, as you know, in the 90s. So, and you, I think you've alluded in one of your articles to the Carl Bayer, um, Hill Norton thing as well. Yeah, that was know, cool, that, really. Carl Bayer was... was... That was cool as well. So I don't, th I don't think there's anything intrinsically saying that it has to fail. And, and, I, and I really do wish this well, and it can succeed. But to come back to your question, it, the, the tough thing is about culture. And of course, you know, one thing... 
successful agencies have um, is is a strong kind of agency ethos. You know, there is something which drives it, which unites people together, which they feel proud about a certain way of doing things around here. And when you're bringing two businesses together, you know, the, the danger is that you, you kind of break what's there. And, and maybe in this case, you have to break what's there in order to reform it again. Uh, mm. and, uh, and maybe that will work well. But it's absolutely, it is challenging um, because really it does come down to, to people and how people respond. So let's wish it well. Um, and uh, I look forward to your, I think you used the phrase Kremlinologists. I look forward to your Kremlinologist utterances on it, Arun. And we'll all have our own thoughts. Um, but, you know, let's let's um, give it a fair wind and see how it works. And I hope it does work for the sake of the industry. Mm. There's a sense, um, if you look at the, the trend toward agency consolidation, so we're seeing it at WPP in many guises, both on the PR side and in media and research. Um, we're seeing it at Omnicom. You look at that, you look at the holding group results, you look at the pressure on holding groups, whether that's internally from activist investors, whether it's externally from clients like Mark Pritchard, you know, saying that they're going to cut 400 million here or there and that, and that, you know, agency complexity shouldn't be their problem. You look at all of those things and it's hard to avoid the conclusion that the holding group model is under pressure like never before. Um, and I wondered what you thought of that, whether you think that's fair, given that Weber Shandwick, of course, is part of one of the big four holding groups. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, if, if the point is that um, there is considerable um, potential disruption going on um, within the agency model, I think at one, at one level that has to... Yeah, that's demonstrably um, true. And, you know, there's, dis there's disruption from all kinds of quarters, Arun. You know, you can talk about disruption um, going on from the major um, media platforms, um, you know, whether that's Google and Facebook. You can talk about um, in-house investments and in agencies. You can talk about consulting firms um, coming into the market. You can talk about... Um, uh, the entertainment industry and its ability to uh, to make storytelling effective. You can talk about technological disruption, whether it's AI or um, machine learning or, or whatever. Clearly, all of these things are are happening. Um, but I think, and I would argue, you know, we're we're strongly disrupting the other way, if I may say so. You know, everyone goes on about the management consultancies coming in as if, you know, oh, they're eating our lunch and so on. Well, we're eating some of their lunch as well. You know, we have businesses. If we take our um, United Minds business, which runs out of Stockholm um, and is, um, you know, a really high-end business transformation model play is growing strongly and, and we're hoping to export that you know elsewhere along with other high-end consulting products you know that's a business we could have been in four or five uh, years ago so i think you know there's a lot of there is, there is disruption going on all over the place if you like that the boundaries or the traditional marketing silo boundaries are no doubt um, collapsing but I, one thing i would point out so i don't think this is you know necessarily an issue of um well, they're too big, and I, you know, I think I think I read one piece on the Home Spot. I can't remember if you wrote it, Arun or Paul did, 
um, sort of saying, well, you know, the, the big holding company, PR companies are you know, having a terrible time. We're seeing all this much better growth amongst the independents and the smaller, and, and, and you have to be really nimble and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that, that wasn't really the story over uh, the period 2010-11, again, through to, let's let's say, in 2017. But that wasn't the story. You know, we grew, Edelman grew, other big companies like Conan Wolf grew really, really strongly indeed and moved. And while we were doing that, managed to do that, while we are, are were and are, you know, completely transforming our business model. You know, there, and there wasn't a two, three-year hiatus, oh, we've got to change and we're not going to grow in the meantime. You know, we did we did the change on the hoof, as it were. And we're continuing to do that. And I think as well, if you, you know, in a sense, one can't have it both ways. If size and scale are supposedly these big problems for the holding companies, then why is everyone saying um, that the management consulting firms are going to come in and dominate the market? I mean, they're far bigger than us, right? (laughs) You know, so I don't don't accept the idea that scale um, is somehow a problem. Um, and in fact, I would argue it the other way, that in some ways it's, it's precisely because we and, and, and one or two other companies have been able to develop that a global scale, not just in terms of footprint, but the spread of skills and the investment in new areas like data and analytics that we, I know from the kind of where, as I said earlier, where we're growing most strongly, in a sense, comes from, from a virtue of scale. And we also know... Um, you know, there are some big uh, agency consolidation plays out there. And we've had one or two recently, as you know, um, including one in healthcare that, that are, you know, extremely positive to this to the scale model. Um, so I don't think it, what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is, I, you know, if if there are issues, and I think there are challenges, and I, I listed some of them a moment ago, I don't think it sort of comes because we're too big and complicated um, or that we can't be nimble enough um, and, and another uh, point to make I suppose is you know if you've got uh, and I think again this is a point that you or someone else made in the Homes Report recently you know if you're if you're 500 million dollars say and um, you you grow at you know 5% well that's created another 25 million dollar agency right <laughs> which is which is pretty impressive and of course if you're a if you're a 10 million dollar firm you, you you can grow at 30 40 50% and that looks really exciting and it is exciting if you're in that firm but you know i think the track the growth track record has been pretty good but if the point is are we entering into a, a more confused phase in the market with lots of different entrants and lots of challenges then i think that's that that's clearly happening at the moment we'll see how it how it plays out but i i still remain uh, and i i think uh, others i've spoken to in, in this area you know whether in weber shamik or in friends in competing firms we still remain really really positive about what the opportunity is and i think one of the reasons for that is that um you know while we're all heavily investing in in uh, well some of us are anyway in in data and analytics and new kinds of content and content to commerce and higher end consulting and all these wonderful things and they're working very well i still think there is a you know a core part of what a pr firm is able to bring clients in a sense has not changed uh, when i when i was young i had a boss who talked about um permission to speak 
by which he meant, you know, um, before you go out and do or say anything in marketing communications terms, you've got to have a clear idea of why why anyone should should bother listening to you. You know, what have you got to say that's worth saying, and and you know, why does it matter to to your stakeholders? And that's still a really fundamental question. And if you also take the idea that the a lot of the um, what you might put put the, the boundary there was between here's here's brand and marketing activity in one bubble. And here, on the other hand, are lots of corporate, um, you know, stakeholders in a completely different bubble. Well, that's completely broken down, as, as we've seen, you know, um, that, that, you know, influence former considerations, stakeholder considerations of all sorts uh, are absolutely permeate brand marketing now and vice versa. You know, if, if, from a, if, you, if you're managing your stakeholder relationships, the brand becomes crucial. Mm-hmm. And so our ability, if you like, to, um, to marry together um, brand understanding, you know, um, proving it works results, which of course are very, very important, with an understanding of the sensitivity for all stakeholders, um, and, and the impact that, of course, governments, politicians, and many others, as we know, without going into the whole um, issue of what's happening in North America or Europe politically. But if you if you take that, then there's never been a time, in a sense, for greater strategic nous uh, in terms of how you deliver um, engaging programs, how you use data and analytics, you know, how there is still, I'd like to think anyway, uh, there is still the sense of having a um, a strategic mind, and a PR agency is a collective strategic mind about how you deploy these, um, these, these, these tools that we've got now. So when I look at the areas where we're growing most, um, it's precisely because of scale, it's precisely because of the investments we've been making across the board in, in um, areas we weren't thinking of investing in five or ten years ago. And that's why I still remain pretty positive um, about about the picture. Uh, but uh, let's allow for the fact we're going into a more disruptive period all around that impacts holding companies uh, and it impacts many others as well. And we shall see how that plays out. Mm. I mean, the, the only thing I'd say, because, you know, it is something we have said and, and we base our observation purely on the numbers. You know, it's, it's been very clear yeah. over the last seven years, uh, certainly since we started tracking the numbers, that independent firms have have outgrown um, their publicly held peers by a factor of around two to one every year. Now, ob- the obvious exceptions to that rule have been Edelman and Weber Shandwick. And I would argue those are the two firms that have harnessed scale to their advantage. What has been noticeable, and you're too polite to say this, I suspect, but when you look at the other big PR firms, they have, have not grown at anything like the same rate over that period. And for them, scale seems to be more of a burden than a benefit. Uh, and yes, hence, I, I, hence the numbers. Yes, I, I take the point. Um, and I, I, again, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, and I don't really want to you know, critique um, why, why some of those you know, larger companies out there um, have not grown as as strongly. Um, mm. I can only say if you look at you know if you look at us and you look at say say Edelman as well. I don't know. I think we were both of us um, 
much quicker off the mark going back what seven or eight years ago now mm -hmm. in in working out the way the world was changing and the way the business model was changing and making um some brave investments you know not all of which succeed but a lot do in terms of how we were going to what kinds of different talent we were going to bring in from what sort of areas and you know what investments we're going to make in intellectual property and we also i think in terms of both companies um, became a, a lot more capable of, uh, of managing um, complex multi-market assignments and, you know, trying to yeah. work out and solve what the client experience should be in that. Um, and, of course, you make all the mistakes in doing so, don't you? But you get better. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, in, in both cases, we've been um, just quicker and maybe braver at going into areas where we could see things are changing and you don't get that 100% right but if you get it right most of the time then you do very very well mm. and I don't know whether you know the other companies perhaps didn't quite do that as much or or whatever but mm. you know I take your point that I again I come back to the idea you know whether I think whether companies succeed or not in this market I don't think is is are they larger or are they smaller? I'm delighted there's a thriving independent sector. I think there'll always be a thriving independent sector, by the way, because, mm. you know, the, the, those companies, um, um, you know, in a sense, the way the agency model's always been built, you know, get agency, get desk, have bags of enthusiasm, um, and, and real can-do, will-do, um, or have a specialist skill no one else. You go to do well, and you deserve to do well. Um, but at the end of the day, that's, you know, that's not our model. Um, and our model is built on um, on global scale and global capability. And if I look at what's going to drive our business forward, I can't really comment about anyone else's, but our business is is based on deepening scale and investment in new capabilities, not lessening them or breaking it up or becoming, you know, something different. Of course, there are other reasons, Arun, as you know, that you know holding companies have had you know more complex structures, and that's trying to manage. You know competitive issues between clients and sectors um yeah uh, and how, how, how do you do that and, and that that's of course a, a driver and by the way it's not just for the um, satisfaction of the agency so they can handle more business you know clients expect uh, all sorts of protections quite rightly mm. in that area as well and, and so you know from our point of view um yeah, you never say never about anything in the world, but you know the the way the existing PR agencies work with Interpolitics seems to work very very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I should put a mention for Golden that performed you know strongly at, at their punching weight as well, which has you know performed above their weight for some time now. Yep. And so it works it works well for us. Um, and you know, but nonetheless, who can say what the structure will be in one year's time, two years time? It would be foolish to make uh, predictions mm -hmm. like that. But but I'm, I'm, you know, pretty comfortable with what the way we're approaching it and, and how that works for us. Okay, well, you've got company up there now uh, with a new $700 million agency on the block. And that, yeah. will, be, that will be an interesting one to watch as it unfolds. Um, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. As always, very illuminating um, and very eloquent as well. Uh, and we look forward to having you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. It's a real pleasure, as always, Arun, talking with you. Talk again soon or whenever. Thank you. Thank God you bless. all for listening. Um, big shout to our sponsor, March Communications. Big shout to our production partner, Marketeers. And we'll be back next week. Thank you all. 
You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.